Greetings, groovy cats and kittens. Welcome to the Diabolical Cafe, where the coffee's hot and the poetry's cool. Today we're diving deep to a twisted tale of love, laughter, and a touch of terror. Yes, we're talking about So I Married an Axe Murderer. But beware, dear listeners, for we're about to unfurl the scroll of spoilers, revealing the mysteries that lie within. This is Diabolical, the show where four long-suffering friends dissect films' most dastardly schemes, then compete to improve them. I'm your host, Craig, and this week's movie is 1993's killer comedy Mike Myers vehicle, So I Married an Axe Murderer. So, Peril Pals, grab a large cappuccino and a sharp axe, and let's get Diabolical. Welcome to this week's episode. As host for this week, I'm the MC of the panel of Peril Poets Society, who will compete against me at the close of the show in a bid to become San Francisco's most prolific Black Widow killer, as we each try to come up with the best alternative plan for the movie villain of the week, before we vote to name this week's most diabolical. As ever, I am joined by three murderous siblings. Please introduce yourselves and tell me. What is your favourite poem in cinema or television? Let's start with Ben. Hello, hello, and Happy New Year, fellows. Happy New Year. Happy New Year Year slash Merry Christmas. (laughs) My favourite poem comes from a film that also stars Mike Myers. Shit. It's from Austin Powers, the first one. It's where he's in the bath with a lot of vagina, and he says... Pardon me for being rude. It was not me. It was my food. <laughs> it just popped up to say hello, and now it's gone back down below. Wow. Came to you first because when I prepped you for this warm-up question, you immediately said, oh, I've just thought what mine is, so I thought, oh, I can't wait to hear this. Glad I went with you first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gaz, let's hear from you next, please. Hi, Beaver Pusses. I'm Gaz, and my poem is from a television series which we're all a big fan of called Buffy the Vampire Slayer, read by a vampire mm-hmm. named Spike in a poetry mm. club, not yes. unlike in this week's film, <laughs> where he says, My heart expands, tis grown a bulge in it, inspired by your beauty, effulgent. Yeah. <laughs> effulgent. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the rest of it? Not really. No. Christ. My soul is wrapped in harsh repose. Midnight descends in raven's clothes. And then I can't remember the rest. <laughs> Good show, that one. Very, very nice choice. And that brings us on to you, Cinemaster. What's your choice? Hello there, X fans. It's Cinemaster here. <laughs> And my favourite <laughs> poem is from a film we have already covered, and I shall just simply repeat it and see if you can get it. He slams his fists against the posts, yet still insists he sees the ghosts. Mm. Oh, it rings a bell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, what's that? It's from It, and it's what Billy says to help him with his stutter, isn't it? Ah, yes, ah, of course. Ah, yeah, very good. Very good. Mm-hmm. Very nice, everybody. And as for me, mine is from the film that we covered last week. 
and also the week before and the week before that. And that film is Groundhog Day. And it's when oh, yeah. Phil Connors in Groundhog Day quotes Coleridge to tell a very pleased man the news about what the groundhog, what he predicts the groundhog will see. Because he doesn't know he's traveling through time. He says, winter slumbering in the open air, wears on his smiling face a dream of spring. Pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as we are approaching our fifth season, I thought it would be a great time to introduce a new segment, which I'm calling What's Worse. I'll share three facts relating to So I Married an Axe Murderer, two of which will be true and one false. Mm. All you need to do is spot the false one. What's Worse? Playing John Johnson, a.k.a. Vicky, the Alcatraz prison guard, or passing on the role to play the villainous Colonel Chi in Surf Ninjas. Leslie Nielsen opted for the latter. Number two, what's worse, playing John Johnson, a.k.a. Vicky, the Alcatraz prison guard, or passing on the role to play Chet Rocket Steadman in Rookie of the Year? Gary Busey opted for the latter. And finally, What's worse, playing John Johnson, a.k.a. Vicky, the Alcatraz prison guard, or passing on the role to play the dog in Look Who's Talking Now? Danny DeVito opted for the latter. So all of those are true. We've got to find the false one. <laughs> no, that's not how it works. Two of them are true, and one of them is a false one. Uh, it's a new segment, so I wasn't sure of the rules. Right, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, it's quite tricky to keep up with that, yeah. So someone was up for the role of John Johnson. Everyone here calls me Vicky. Was it Leslie Nielsen, who instead was in Surf Ninjas? Was it Gary Busey, who instead in that year was in Rookie of the Year? Or was it Danny DeVito, who was in Look Who's Talking Now? But it's Phil Hartman who plays Vicky, so they're all true. But only two of them were offered it. Do you understand? Uh, okay. Right, 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 right. I don't think Leslie Nielsen was offered it. That's my guess. Yeah, he doesn't seem like a Myers-style comedian to me, Leslie Nielsen. Mm -hmm. I don't think that anybody that's met Gary Busey would give him a job again, so I'm pretty <laughs> sure he wouldn't have been offered it. He seems to be roundly despised in Hollywood. He's amazing in Entourage. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I think that's just him playing himself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to say Gary Busey. I reckon he was probably going through one of his like schizophrenic moments while this film was being made, and that way he was discounted. Well, this was 1993. I think Gary Busey was generally considered a, a little bit more compassmentous then. You're all wrong. Danny DeVito was never offered the role. Les Nielsen is oh. a, a fellow Canadian of Mike Myers's Canada people. So <laughs> <laughs> Big country, though, isn't it? Big country. <laughs> that was nicely done. <laughs> was Jim Carrey also offered a role? I assume not. I think they were more rivals. Jim Carrey was offered Dr. Evil in Austin Powers and he accepted, but pulled out at the last minute. What? Yeah, interesting. Celine Dion, Brian Adams. Celine Dion and Brian Adams are not actors 
and they're not comedians. But they are Canadian. He's got you there. Time now to delve into this week's film, So I Married an Axe Murderer. Starting out life as the man who cried wife, screenwriter Robbie Fox described his original vision as essentially Woody Allen in Hitchcock's Suspicion and would have told the tale of a neurotic and paranoid Jewish man whose otherwise perfect spouse would in fact have been an axe-wielding serial killer. Over the course of a contentious production process that saw the central casting shift from the likes of Gary Shandling Albert Brooks, and even Woody Allen himself, to SNL alumni Chevy Chase, Martin Short, and eventual star Mike Myers, the project metamorphosed into the twistier tale of the now Scottish commitment phobe Charlie McKenzie, following uncredited rewrites by Myers and Neil Malarkey. In addition to his shtick, Myers' influence can also be felt in the bohemian trappings of Charlie's life. Filming was also fraught, with director Thomas Schlammer's vision for a well-lit and shot kinetic motion picture, clashing with Myers' comedic sensibility to the point where Myers reportedly refused to perform if he saw a dolly track being laid down for a scene. (laughs) In spite of this, the result is a film with a cohesive plot, memorable characters, great performances, and some of the greatest cameos ever seen in comedy, and a hilarious script packed with quotable dialogue. The film was a disappointment at the box office, with Meyer's name failing to overshadow the clunky title, but in the years since, it has become a cult favourite. But, what did the panel of peril make of it? Let's start with you, Ben. What did you think about it? What an absolute treat. It's just joyful absurdity from start to finish. I think Mike Myers is in top form, and as you say, the supporting cast is incredible, particularly a favourite of mine, Alan Arkin, as the police captain mm. who's learning to be meaner. Yeah. And again, as you say, the lines and the jokes are just so quotable. So like Guesthouse Paradiso, I watched this with a big grin on my face throughout. So overall, I give it, a, if you're looking for laughs to go with your oversized frappuccino, then this movie's for you. Beautiful. Out of five. <laughs> <laughs> it's a film that's uh, quite obsessed with oversized things. My favorite one. Is the poster of Atlantic City, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's the huge oversized poster of Atlantic City, which is the profile picture on my own twitter account not the podcast one <laughs> i've always been a fan of that All right uh cinemaster did you also enjoy something not as much as ben okay guys I... <laughs> <laughs> I thought you said it in your uh, introduction mike myers vehicle and it comes across as very much that yeah and he's always great i think in pretty much everything he does he's just got mm. I think he appeals to all four of us because he's just like a mm. an, a sort of off-the-wall comedian. Not everybody gets his comedy. He's a bit strange, you know, but I like that. And I like Mike Myers and I like what he brings this film. And then the cameos fluff it up a little bit. But other than that, I just think it's really quite dull. Some of the cameos are fantastic. Mm. Yeah, and they do lift it. But then I guess it's trying to lift up a corpse that's lost a lot of weight very quickly. There's loads of flaps of skin, so you try and lift it up and immediately it drops. Like fat bastard at the end of Goldmember when he's lost a lot of weight. (laughs) (laughs) The flaps on my arm look a bit like a vagina. (laughs) (laughs) 
particularly the all the Scottish bits. And when you said it was re, you know, obviously it was rewritten and he did the rewrites and everything. I was like, well, okay, that makes a lot of sense why there's some bits of this movie that really work for me and other bits that don't. And that's probably the bits that Mike Myers didn't really alter much, but everything that he did seemed to work was, was like the golden touch. That's interesting. I mean, I've always felt like it has his stamp all over it. Like in yeah, every I mean, it's, it's clearly autobiographical in some parts, like the family. I think he is Lazarus from Liverpool, but yeah. Yeah. How could you not like Mike Myers in this, despite him being trained by a big favourite of this podcast, Timmy Mallet? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I said I did like Mike Myers. So that's the bits I did like. I liked him. Oh, you did like? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My apologies. <laughs> I'll try and listen to you next time. Yeah, (laughs) instead of just zoning out and thinking about, you know, I don't know, Kendall Mint Cake or something like you must have been on your mind. (laughs) Okay, Gaz, where do your thoughts lie? Are you on the side of the Cinemaster or on the side of Sense? (laughs) Well, as I always say to my children, my wife, anybody that I can browbeat, I'm on the side of Sense. and. I think it holds up really, really well. I was slightly worried for the first five or so minutes because I think Mike Myers' performance comes off as slightly smug at the start, mugging to the camera and the hello mm. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it settles in really quickly and becomes genuinely funny. Mm. There's so many lines that I've written down that I both remembered and forgot. Like Cinemaster was saying, the scenes with Charlie's parents are... Really good and yeah. quite clearly semi-autobiographical. Just little details in that, like Stuart, the father, calling his wife, whose name I don't recall, Hen. That's quite a small little detail yeah. that mm-hmm. isn't Canadian or American as far as I'm aware. And it, it just right. plays really nicely yeah. and, and gives it a nice texture. Yeah. And the plot as well, being quite sort of Hitchcockian, but with a screwball mm. twist, works really well. Yeah. Lots of great supporting characters, like Ben said, like the police captain mm. and, and Tony dressed up as a strange 1970s pimp during that opening scene. Yeah. Instantly I was cackling. I didn't remember what he was doing. I was like, what the hell is he dressed as? <laughs> Holds up really, really well. And the constant use of There She Goes on the soundtrack yeah, just gave me a warm, fuzzy feeling too. Every time it came on, I was singing along. It's a great song, yeah. Yeah. It's up there with Myers' best. I'm a big Mike Myers fan and it's a great one. Really good. It's interesting what you say about it being Hitchcockian. Because what I think it does really well is it switches from kind of all-out comedy, really, to the mm. ending. There's real tension in there. Mm. You're kind of on the edge of your seat, and you don't get that in many comedies. I thought that was really, really well done. Well, the other thing you get, you know, talking about Maya's performance in particular, is you get quite a lot of moments where Charlie is quite vulnerable. And I think Myers plays those serious moments really well, too. I think I put him on par with, with Jim Carrey for his ability to do that. Mm. But yeah, this for me is is my favourite Mike Myers film. Probably my favourite comedy film. I, I just think it's great. So many lines in it. So many great sequences. And I say so many great cameos, which I'm sure we'll cover later on. I guess that brings us on to our favourite moments. So let's start with the Cinemaster. Yeah, it's the little flight that your man takes with Steve Wright. <laughs> it's the pilot. <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was a great sequence with some fantastic script writing as well yeah both brilliant performances but particularly steve wright so i loved it yeah got a great line written down from that sorry to jump the gun on lines but from cinemaster sequence tony says how long will it take to get there 
And Steve Wright yeah, says, this is my... it shouldn't take long. <laughs> Actually, I have no concept of time. <laughs> <laughs> have you done this before? Yes, but never at night. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a line from that, which was amazing. He's pointing out the airplane's controls and he says, that's the artificial horizon which is better than the actual horizon. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben, what about your favourite moment or sequence? Like I said in my opening gambit, anything with Alan Arkin, I was just mm. huge grin on my face. I just loved him. He was so nice. He was nice yeah. to the point where he was trying to be mean to make the other guy feel better. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. The one part where he actually like, kind of backs him up against the wall. And he's he's doing it all, you know, he's quite mean. And then at the end he goes, Was was that too much with the ethics slurs? <laughs> Paisan. Paisan. <laughs> he's so good. All right, Gaz, favorite moment or sequence? I'm gonna go for the montage sequence when Charlie helps out Harriet at the butcher's shop. Just because yeah. of how grotesque it is at times. <laughs> it's yeah. quite hideous and it must be violating numerous health and safety and food <laughs> hygiene laws as they sort of dance around with broken yeah. duck's necks and he's got <laughs> flesh dangling out of his sleeve that he taps and goes, ah, ah, as though he's chopped his own hand off. It's really good, that sequence. And it's always a good shorthand, that kind of sequence in a romantic comedy or, or just a straight romantic film for, for getting to know you, isn't it? So it serves two purposes, very handily. Making her butcher was kind of inspired and that butcher shop apparently is a real butcher shop in San Francisco. Under a different name, mm -hmm. though. Not, it's called World of Meat or something. It's yeah, called, it's yeah. like World Meats. Yeah. Meats of the world or something. And then there's that bit where she's dressed as a milkmaid and she just looks incredible. Yeah, never quite worked out why she's dressed as like a Like a Dutch milkmaid. Yeah. You love that, don't you? <laughs> she was oh, yeah. celebrating, the, it was like a Dutch day at the, at the shop, wasn't it? I saw in the background there was some sort of poster up. Uh, okay. Oh, delicious Touch Day. <laughs> Best bit in that butcher sequence is when he's massaging the meat and talking yeah. to it like a masseuse. Yeah. It's fucking feel very tense. One thing that blew my mind on this watch yeah. was he mentions Pentaveret. The Pentaveret when he goes home for the first yeah. time. Yeah. My eyes did that kind of cartoon wolf thing and came out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I sort of vaguely remembered that they were mentioned, but yeah, it is a, with hindsight, a great moment. Pentaveret's great. If Peril Pals at home haven't yeah. watched it on Netflix, it's really, really good. Really good. Cinemaster might disagree. It didn't get the love it deserves that. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I disagree, of course. I just thought it was, uh, <laughs> it was a, a good exhibition of what Mike Myers can do, uh, but it didn't have a lot of... It was all sauce and no spaghetti. Ah. Take that where you want to. <laughs> but the sauce is the best bit of the bolognese. Yeah, the spaghetti is just empty carbs, isn't it? Yeah, but if somebody <laughs> went to you, oh, we're doing spaghetti tonight, and then they just give you a bowl of soup, and you went, where's this, you know, we're supposed to be having spaghetti, aren't you? <laughs> oh, no, well, you know. Has it got mincemeat in it? No. Or corn? It's just the sauce. It's all sauce, no spaghetti. I've just uh, seen a way to cut all that. <laughs> 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 a couple of great sequences that i love that they have funny lines but they're not like favorite lines one is because this film's like in love with san francisco anyway you can see that from establishing shots and where the scenes are set and everything but there's a great bit where charlie asks harriet to scratch him 
and he directs the scratching by telling the different parts of San Francisco on, on his body to scratching. That's really good. There's a couple of visual gags that are back to back. One is him using a thigh master. And when he sees something on the TV that surprises him, it flings off into the background. Yeah. <laughs> and then very shortly after, he hides in Harriet's closet and all the shit falls all over him, just buries him. Really good visual gag, that. But my very favorite sequence in the film has always been when Charlie first meets Rose and says that he's going to leave. And she says, no, no, stay for breakfast. What would you say? It's a silver dollar pancakes, bacon. And he's like, oh, yeah, that sounds really good. And then she just gives him a massive bowl of Fruit Loops because <laughs> they didn't have any of those things. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> and now bring us on to favourite lines. And this time, let's start with Gaz. Quite an innocuous one from Stuart, Charlie's father, when he first meets Harriet. And he says, now, Charlie tells me you're a butcher. Do you eat your own sausage? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Just great. everything he says, basically, is hilarious. Yeah. 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 You could throw a dart at his script and it'd be one of the top lines. <laughs> yeah. All right, Ben. My favourite, absolute favourite, that was just stayed in my head since I've watched it, is just a snippet from one of the opening poems. He's talking about like, Betty Rubble and some other cartoons, and he says, they make me horny... Saturday morning. Yeah. I love the way he's manipulated morning into morning just to rhyme with morning. It's brilliant. And he rhymes cartoons with ruins. Girls from cartoons won't leave me in ruins. I mean, I love the whole poem, but just particularly that little couplet was maybe crease. It's great. They make me horny Saturday morning. Cinemaster, do you like any of the lines in this? You've pinched all of them already anyway. I said oh, my favourite yeah, sequence no and then, and then everybody just rolled them all off and I was like, well, thanks a fucking bunch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got another one. we've all written you off for this episode after you said you didn't yeah, like it. Yeah, well. So we're just that's... trying to get through your bit to, so yeah. we can start. So you can start jizzing all over this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you like. I've got one written down. Look at the size of that boy's head. It's like an orange on a toothpick. <laughs> I tell you what, that makeup holds up hell of a well. It's good, yeah. isn't it? It's not yeah. bad just to jam your glasses. and. <laughs> I think they help a lot, don't they? And his gurney yeah. that he does. Yeah. yeah. And the rotten teeth. And the holds bike. it all together, doesn't he? <laughs> so, yeah, obviously lots to pick from. But I would say when they're playing the What's Worst game that I brought in the uh, icebreaker earlier, and they're asking each other, or they're prompting each other with things that are awful, like finding a used plaster under your steak. And then Tony State just says, being electrocuted. And they just <laughs> yeah. look at her like, you fucking ruined the game. I was electrocuted once. It was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> That's her from Entourage, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Debbie Mazar, yeah. Any dialogue from this made it into your regular everyday vocabulary? Because some has made it into mine. Things that I just say all the fucking time. Quite a lot made it into yours. Yeah. <laughs> I have kitten breath. Say that all the time. <laughs> and it's so evil. You would say it was evil. Like it's the fruit <laughs> of the devil. Say that all the time as well. Anybody want to go with another fave line? One from the dad, just because you have to. His head's like Sputnik. Spherical, but quite pointy in parts. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I'll go with one of the obvious ones. I thought someone would take it, but I'm going to go with the legendary Phil Hartman saying, my name is John Johnson, but everyone here calls me Vicky. <laughs> he and the other inmates took turns pissing into the bitch's ocular cavity. <laughs> <laughs> this way to the gift shop. Another great cameo we haven't talked about is Michael Richards as the guy at the newspaper who's fucking around at the obituary so desk. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and won't drop the idea that Charlie's saying he's a bad person yeah. for asking about the wife. <laughs> I think we've all agreed that, well, certainly Ben and I, that Alan Arkin is the best part of this. And some of my favorite lines from him when Tony's saying, I always wanted to hang off that part of a helicopter, you know? Yes, I know that part. <laughs> <laughs> If you're new to the podcast and you're enjoying it, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you can, but especially Apple. It helps keep us making these and keeps us from turning our hands to beat poetry. In So I Married an Axe Murderer, Twisted Sister Rose enjoys a prolific career as a serial killer, bumping off any would-be suitor who might steal away the affections of her beloved Harriet while forging Dear John letters to make it seem as though each man had jilted the poor paranoid butcher. Ultimately, Rose is foiled when serial relationship killer Charlie buys into his mum's Black Widow conspiracy theory and begs his cop buddy Tony to investigate Harriet's past, eventually leading him to wrongly conclude that Harriet is Mrs X, but stumbling on the truth when Rose is caught in the act of trying to ask Charlie a question. But how did the panel of peril rate Rose's diabolical scheme? Was it a good concept? And how well was it pulled off? How well was it pulled off, Gaz? I suppose it's quite good, really, isn't it? Because she's gotten away with it for, what is it, two or three husbands previously? Three, I think, isn't it? Three. That we know of. With only the weekly world news, presumably a national inquiry facsimile, with only that to go on gathering any any notable evidence seems like she's basically getting away with it scot-free until she encounters a particularly paranoid weirdo like charlie who is prone to wheedling his way into little tiny things to not make a commitment because of mm. so i think it's just just that final act of getting rid of charlie which makes it not a particularly good plan because, as I say, she's she's made a roaring success of it to date. All right. Thanks for your thoughts there, Gaz. And what about you, Cinemaster? Pretty much the same as Gaz. She's been doing a ruddy good job up until now. And then uh, she uh, seems to go a bit over the top in her efforts to bump Charlie off. And that's what does her in, really. Mm, yep. And Eggs Benedict, do you have any different thoughts? I'm pretty much aligned with the two fellows that have just spoken previously. She's obviously got away with it three times that we know of. I'd say this time she seems to rush it. Does it have to be on the honeymoon? Maybe I've addressed yeah. that. I don't know. We'll see later. <laughs> yeah. 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 The other big question mark about that is she leaves the note and she's she's like, you're not supposed to be in the room when this note has been written. Well, what steps does she take to prevent that from happening? None that I can see. Was it because, you know, they get rushed back from dinner early, perhaps? 
I, I don't know. No, I don't know is, is that foiled her plan? Maybe Possibly. it has. Maybe it's put some broccoli in some foil and then grilled that broccoli in the foil and then it's come out real nice. Well, since we're on the topic of broccoli, allow me to give my broccoli rating. Oh, that was a total non sequitur. Ah, wow. But please that do. Well, well, incredible. Conveniently <laughs> aligned. Sometimes the planets just align. For the previous murders that Harriet knew nothing about, but then the minus broccoli for the rushed job at the end, she gets 11 <gasps> florets of broccoli. Pretty good. I think you've been a bit too uh, you're over-egging the pudding there, I think, somewhat. She got away with three murders? Well, you just come into it with a shit attitude this week, haven't you? That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't talked about it really, and I want to highlight it because... My answer is she's fantastic. What do we think of Amanda Plummer's portrayal of Rose? And is is she a good villain? She's always good, isn't she? She she's convincingly unhinged when she needs yeah. to be, as in the opening of Pulp Fiction, and indeed here. And I also believe that she was very much like an actress. Yeah. <laughs> Insert bland comment here. <laughs> <laughs> this bodes well for the future of the podcast we do about movies. That tend to <laughs> well, I think, I think there's been quite a few contentious films in this uh, series, I think. Some purposely so, some, yeah. some not so purposely. Yeah, some of them have been pure shit. This is the part of the show where the panel of peril compete for the title of season four's most diabolical. Up for grabs is one point for each vote, which will go towards the series leaderboard. Rose staged a dear John from Charlie before trying to kill him with an axe. But what would you have done differently, Gaz? Seeing Charlie's father and his salty Glaswegian ways at he and Harriet's wedding gives Rose a little idea. She will follow the happy couple to their honeymoon hotel, as in the film, but only after first having murdered Stuart with the titular axe. Then she would skillfully fashion a hat from his head using her sewing skills and place it <laughs> atop her normal-sized noggin. Then... Whilst Harriet is getting ready for the evening meal during the thunder-slash-lightning storm, she would cut the power to their room. Then she would come into said room with a boogity-boogity voice, blood dripping down her face, and scare Charlie out of the room and the hotel. Harriet would not hear any of this over the noise of the shower. <laughs> then Charlie would flee in his car, presumably on his way home to his mother, and Rose would give chase. Catching up to him on a rickety old bridge, Rose would ram Charlie's car off into the precipice where it would explode with a loud bang. Fortunately, this bridge is in the middle of nowhere and so no one hears it and no one will ever, <laughs> ever look into the precipice to see if any cars have been rammed off into it. <laughs> then, Rose would simply head home and wait for Harriet to return since her bow has vanished without word. Then, when Harriet does return, Rose will present her with the handwritten letter purporting to be from Charlie, as in the film. He's nowhere to be seen or heard from, so Harriet slowly comes to believe this is true. Then, they move to the next city to begin the cycle anew. God, 
It's a stark ending, bleak. <laughs> hey, you you set the uh, the rules. That's dispatch, Charlie. <laughs> I did, I did. I think the the film set the rules, but yeah. <laughs> Gareth, yes. May I ask a question? You may. Do you think Harriet would still be in the shower after the lights went out? Yes, because she's a lady, you see. So she has lit and she has lighted many, many Ooh. candles, Ooh. especially oh, to have a shower. Oh. In. Ah. Good answer. <laughs> I thought you were going to say because in the shower that little emergency light comes on, that little tiny red one by the. <laughs> by the <pillar>. <laughs> so she makes Stuart's head into a hat just to extra scare Charlie. Yeah. So it's it's basically coming up with a compelling reason to make Charlie leave the hotel, which would be the death of his father, and then murdering him away from the hotel, away from prying eyes. Hmm. And then, you know, everything just falls into place from there, doesn't it? Easy peasy. Bish bash bosh. How long's the drive from San Fran to the hotel? It's a, it's a few hours, we're led to believe, isn't it? I would think so, yeah. So Rose has had to kill Stuart a few hours previous. Hmm. Do you not think that will have been discovered by the time they reach the hotel and perhaps a phone call might be waiting for them? No, because she's simply hidden the body. (laughs) (laughs) Bloody Rose. She's She's crafty. uh, Hiding the body. She's, uh, She's thinking outside the... Coffin? Thinking outside the box, yeah. Then I have just one more question for you, Gareth. Yes. yes. Have you ever axe murdered someone? If you have, did they wear glasses? Uh, I'm going to say no, uh, but I'm going to do a little wink. (laughs) Wink. Wink. (laughs) So when you didn't axe murder someone, did their glasses stay intact after the frenzied attack, hypothetically? It's hard to hit someone wearing glasses, isn't it? So I'd have aimed around the glasses hypothetically, yeah. to make sure that I didn't violate that very important rule. I think Fair maybe enough. you need to clarify which... So I, what I imagined this Stuart head was from the chin up, and I think Ben's imagining it from the glasses up, that you've hacked into his glasses with the axe. I'm imagining it's the whole head, but you're going to need the glasses to make that work right. Without the glasses, he's not Stuart. You lop off his head, though, could yeah, you? But, like yeah, and then... It, the axe isn't yeah. going anywhere near the glasses, really. Yeah, but in a frenzied attack, Stuart's not standing there going, oh, chop my neck off. He's moving, he's weaving, his hands are coming up. I reckon those glasses, the size of them, you could probably hit them with, you know, shoot a 50 cal bullet at them and it'd probably bounce right off them. Yeah. I remember a lad at school, he once brought in some Oakley sunglasses and goes, they can take a shotgun blast a metre away. What about your face? <laughs> yeah, the rest of your face would be absolutely destroyed, but... You just stopped when... <laughs> anyone like to cross-examine Gareth any further, or shall we move on? I think he's been tortured enough. His plan's in tatters already. <laughs> well then, what would you do different, Cinemaster? Rose knows... The filthy, disgusting minds of men. Men and their thoughts. Only interested in one thing. She can see the wheels in Charlie's head turning the first time they meet. You know when I mean. Not that he'd ever ask, 
But if she is to keep Harriet to herself, she must be the one to approach Charlie with the ultimate offer before they tie the knot. One day, when Harriet is down the abattoir, selecting corpses to dismember in her shop, Rose makes her move on Charlie. You know, Charlie, having two wives could have its advantages, says Rose in a seductive fashion, (laughs) while flashing him a bit of leg. His mind is racing with possibilities, but this is just the canopy in the feast of carnal desire. Harriet and I share everything. Heck, we even used to share Ralph. Sex, (laughs) smolders Rose. (laughs) Charlie is taken aback, but his junk is rolling up in his pants like a fucking marquee. His mind is swimming with all the similar-looking women in bed with each other, necking on and such and such. She tells Charlie that her and Harriet have something exciting planned for him, and he should come back in an hour when she is back. Deciding it would be a good idea to pop home for a tactical pinch of the one-eyed snake, Charlie disappears. Harriet returns 30 minutes later, and Rose tells her that Charlie has said he'd meet her down the poetry club where they serve large cappuccinos in about 15 minutes with some exciting news and for her to wait there for him. Charlie returns to the apartment 15 minutes after Harriet leaves, quite beside himself. Rose answers the door, dressed in a suitably sexy attire, and beckons him in. She tells Charlie to head upstairs where Harriet and his destiny await. As Charlie flings open the door to the bedroom, he sees plastic sheets all over the floor and furniture, but no Harriet. Just before Rose buries an axe in the back of his heed, Charlie flops onto the floor, brown bread. Rose rolls him up into the plastic and dumps his body in a shallow grave in Sherwood Forest. Chop, chop. Dig, dig, Charlie. (laughs) Very nice. And does Rose convince Harriet that Charlie has simply left? Yeah, he's done a a runner. And how does she do that? Charlie's done a runner, uh, Harriet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then you've covered all the criteria of the question. No problems. (laughs) She's accepted the fate of three other blokes, just like, oh, they've just gone, and that's it. And she's like, okay, another one's gone, fine. It's just like, you know, after three, you're going to take the fourth one, and you're going to be like, I'm just a jinx. I'm just repulsive to men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but generally, yeah. yeah. (laughs) She must think there's something wrong with her. I know that feeling all too well. (laughs) Rose is almost one now. She's almost one. Maybe there'll be another one. Possibly two, but then after that, I think Harriet will just stop trying. What's Rose's plan for after this? Does she have a plan going forwards, or is it just playing it by ear? Just playing it by ear. Like I say, the whole thing, this plan was like, Charlie cops an eyeful of her in the shower, and she's like, okay. Yeah, that was the point I wanted to bring up, is that when he cops an eyeful, he's not impressed. Mm-hmm. So what's a bit of ankle going to do to entice him in? At first, he's he's obviously embarrassed, isn't he? like most blokes would be. They wouldn't be like standing there going, oh yeah. 
<laughs> and that's what I said in that. He's not the one that's got to make the first move. It's got to be her because he's attached to Harriet. So it's got to be the other way around. That's why I said he can't go to her. Do you fancy a threesome? He'd be out on his arse and branded a pervert before you know it. So it has to be her. And that's what she recognises, that if he comes on to her or approaches her about any of that or says anything to Harriet, then he's a pervert and he's no good and he's no not marriage material. Get the fuck out. Quite bleak, that ending, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to say this about all of them. <laughs> I hope so. All right, well, has anyone got any more challenges for the Cinemaster? No. All right, then, Smartos. What would you have done differently, Ben? Well, if you ask me, and you seem to every week, <laughs> yeah, Rose had the right idea, but she struck too soon. She needed to bide her time and lure her prey into a trap. So she starts by spending more time with the newly wedded Charlie and Harriet. After a night at the coffee shop, she has a brainwave and decides that is the perfect place to set phase one of her plan in motion. At the next poetry night, to everyone's surprise, Rose is called to the stage. She stands up and begins her recital. Scotland, Scotland, Scotland. Your food is deep fried and petrified, chock full of grim heart disease. <laughs> Late nights, street fights, rap burns and those other drunk Scots. Give me the squits, stomach turning shits. Worse than a boiled haggis. Jock, get me off this crazy number nine bus bound for Govan. Back at the table, she tells Charlie that she knows her poem is derivative, but that she really enjoyed the creative process and would love to get better at it. Perhaps he wouldn't mind giving his new sister-in-law a few lessons. Rose is a model student, and what she lacks in talent, she makes up for in enthusiasm. She arranges classes at times she knows Harriet will be at work. And she even brings quality takeout coffee as a thank you. After several weeks, she decides it's time to strike. She slips rat poison in Charlie's cappuccino, which he glugs down after a vaguely humorous aside. Once he's dead, Rose pens another poem using the skills Charlie himself taught her. Harriet. Harry et. Harry et. I gotta go. Didn't you know I'm falling for your sister, Rose? I don't want to hurt you, so I'm going to desert you, travelling far, far from here. Jane, get me off of this crazy thing called marriage to a woman I no longer love. She places it on the bedside table, packs some of Charlie's things in a case, and leaves to dispose of the body. That's two poems there, so you better fucking vote for me. <laughs> Is rat poison... Given to a human, is that like an instant death or is it cumulative? Do you have to give like many doses? Oh, it's instant. Have you not seen Dumb and Dumber? <laughs> I have, funnily enough, on this very podcast. Well, people take rat poison to thin their blood. It's called warfarin. Mm. Uh, okay. Well, whatever poison, she's poisoned before, right? So she knows what poison kills. So it's that poison. Mm. Okay. She also has experience disposing of bodies, so no questions there, please. Cross out rat poison and put that poison. <laughs> A-N poison. She puts 
a very strong poison in his coffee. <laughs> Should mm. that back in. Would Charlie like Rose insulting Scotland like that? Yeah, because he laughs at his dad and he likes the humour. Because, you know, mm. she's joking. Would he rate her poetry or would he say that was some of the worst poetry that he's heard? Yeah, are you just basically ripping my poetry off and inserting stuff about Scotland? Yeah, that's why she says it's derivative. She knows, uh, but okay. that's why she wants to, to learn her own way. That's the only one he does, though, isn't it? He doesn't do any other poetry. That's the only thing he does, doesn't it? That's his basically his, his one-trick pony thing, isn't it? That's his shtick. Yeah. He's a one-trick pony. Pretty much. And it seems to go down well. Every single time. Smooth. All right. Anybody got any more challenges for Ben? Mine's easily the best so far. So far. <laughs> so just write that down in your notes. All of you. Quiet. All of you. <laughs> Too smug. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. I've written too smug. It's like Turner's got a little camera behind me. <laughs> Sorry, Cinemaster, you beautiful you. man. Enjoy your Cinemaster while you can. <laughs> oh, that was a, that was, that was it. Yeah, that was a, it that was a <laughs> double edged sword. If I remember very much, mistaken. It wasn't, meant, wasn't, wasn't meant to be. I just meant it coming to the end, and it's quite quite likely that uh, I know I'm going to lose my crown. Just let me enjoy it f- without being reminded. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Cinemaster. <laughs> Cinemaster, enjoy your good health while you can. That's what you say. Hey, Ben, look after those testicles while you've got them. <laughs> he hasn't had them for like, what is it, 13 years now? Yeah. I, I went to his wedding all right. <laughs> all right. All right, all right, all right. What would you have done differently? Me. Craig. <laughs> <laughs> the very moment Charlie and Harriet share their happy news, Rose sets about writing her note. However, this note is not for her sister, but for her soon-to-be-late brother-in-law. Charlie is stunned to receive a ransom note. He presumes from Sherry admitting the theft of his cat and instructing him on where to make the drop-off. He can't help but impulsively jump in his Carmen Gear VW convertible and speed to the destination. When he gets there, he sees his beloved Kerouac through the frosted and cracked glass of a window in an abandoned building near Hunter's Point shipyard. He's trapped under a milk crate. When Charlie enters, he sees the cat is dead and its collar reads Ginsburg? The jig is up, (laughs) but it's too late, and he never even sees Rose glide up behind him before it's 40 whacks with a wet noodle. Days go by before Harriet finally discovers Rose's next letter, this time apparently from Charlie. It reads, Harriet, Harriet, graceful goddess of Gabagool, I'm terminally ill. I got back with Jill. Her offer I could not refuse. Put me out of my misery, he pleads with her, knowing she knows his concrete shoe size. Confound it. Goddamn it. Forget about me. Jill, get me off this crazy thing called life. When Charlie's body is found dumped in the river, 
all suspicion points to Jill and the Cosa Nostra, leaving Rose to console Harriet and move on. So you'll remember that Jill is in the Mafia. Well, that's what he uses as his excuse for ditching her, isn't it? She's unemployed, though. Yeah. So this plan presupposes that Rose has heard this from Charlie and believes it. What is Charlie's concrete shoe size? (laughs) That was just poetic license. (laughs) I'd say he's a US 12. Yeah. I don't understand US sizes. They confuse me. That's a UK 11. That's Mm. massive. I've got got Mm. a UK 11. They build them bigger over there, don't they? You think Mike Myers has got size 11 feet? Oh, yeah. Could do. How tall is he? He's short, isn't he? No, he's like eight foot, eight foot yeah. six. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then, yeah, you might be right. <laughs> <laughs> All I would say is my poem was better than both of yours put together. Just, just putting it out there for everyone I else to it. consider. I doubt it. Two is always better than one. All right. Well, if nobody has any challenges for me... Come on, there must be. There's more holes in that than Swiss cheese. Why don't you uh, poke your little uh, noodle through them, then? (laughs) (laughs) Some truly diabolical schemes there, but who will get the votes? To recap the plans, first we had Gaz's Scotch Bonnet. That is a hat made out of Stuart McKenzie's head to scare Charlie <laughs> and then run him off the road. Then we had Cinemaster's vegan propaganda slash <laughs> Gone Girl threesome. How rude. <laughs> Saying that she's cutting up corpses in the butchers and then cutting up Charlie on a bed strewn with plastic like Gone Girl. Then we had Ben's casual racist poetry slam. <laughs> <laughs> the way by Rose slags off the Scots. The proud Scottish people. Our greatest audience <laughs> members. Yeah. Oh, can I just throw in now to all the Scottish people I know, I love you all. It's just a joke. <laughs> and finally, we had my misspent euthanasia. So how has that affected the season four leaderboard? <laughs> We've all assumed the votes, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming a clean sweep. Two poems is far greater than one poem. Everyone knows that. <laughs> you already counting out the other two. <laughs> just just know <laughs> that's the contest. <laughs> Quantity over quality every single fucking day of the week. <laughs> all right. Well, since he's all mouth, let's hear first from Ben who you voted for. I have voted for... Craig, but I've also written shit poem in the speech <laughs> <laughs> poem. Shit poem, but you still vote for him. And Gaz, who have you voted for? I also voted for Craig. Oh, two for me, oh my god. Well, I have voted for Gaz. Very good. And finally, Cinemaster. And I have also voted for Gaz. <gasps> it's another split. It's another oh, shit. split. Disgrace. You should have written three poems. Three poems. <laughs> Two poems and I didn't get a single point. Two, Two poems. poems. Just basically <laughs> ripped off, templated from the film. Even without the poems, mine made way more sense. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's insane. It was shit. And I'm I supposed to be hosting the next episode? Because I ain't turning up for it. Most <laughs> <laughs> <Hosting> yourselves. <laughs> Guess <laughs> what has that done to the season four diabolical board? Well, there's two boys in the lead 
who will have to wrestle for a decider on next week's final episode and that is myself and Craig oh my God. with 22 points apiece. I can smell Count Attacula re-incorporating oh, from he's, the mist. he's getting cocky, isn't he? <laughs> and it stinks. <laughs> <laughs> so in third place with 18 points is the Cinemaster. Oof, and in fourth place, travesty. 14 points is Ben. Wow. I can't believe I'm still facing all this from the first season jealousy. I can't just let it go, guys. <laughs> your powers are weak, old man. That's all it is. Your your poetry and your songs no longer hold any sway over us. And just face it. Cinemaster, you wouldn't know a good plan if it came up and slapped you in the ass. <laughs> Next week, it's our season four finale. And Ben will be hosting. So what villainous plot will we be tasked with rethinking? Well, we're going to be heading to the seedy underbelly of Hong Kong and we're going to watch Enter the Dragon. And that wraps up this episode like a strung haggis. Thank you for listening. And if you want to call me baby, just go ahead now. Make sure you subscribe, hit the bell and leave us a review on the very platform on which you're currently listening. You can follow us on social medium at DiabolicalPod. Next week, we'll be competing to improve on the diabolical plot to enter the dragon. Until then, remember, the colonel puts an addictive chemical in his chicken that makes you crave it fortnightly. There she grows. There There she she grows grows again. Racing through my legs. And, and I, I just can't contain, contain this feeling I'm on a plane. All right, time now to delve into this week's film. Uh, oh, fucking Jesus. So I married an axe murderer. <laughs> <laughs> well, the truth is, Tony, I don't report to a commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> report to a committee you're only asking Gaz for his opinion are you well up yours I didn't ask anybody I just, just said I left he, it as an open question if you want to call me baby just go ahead now and if you want to say me maybe just go ahead now is it him or is it me I'm the one who kept it up can't you see <laughs> <laughs> Ain't got no funeral family tree. And a bit of hard to be, baby, to be pissed. The souffle of murder has collapsed. Good night.